Morning, everybody. I'm a little bit disappointed I didn't get theme music like James did. <laughs> That's all right. <clears throat> uh, so today we're in the last week of our Back to Life series. And uh, first week was two weeks ago. We talked about Jesus being back to life. That was Resurrection Sunday. And uh, last week, Danny talked about how because Jesus has been resurrected... Uh, there's different aspects of our life that can be resurrected. And last week was our relationships can become back to life. And today we're talking about ambitions. Our ambitions, our future, our plans uh, that come back to life. Now I've only got 15 minutes so we're just going to go straight into it. I hope that's okay. So Mark 10. <coughs> there we go. 17 to 20, we see this story, it's a very familiar one, but let me read it to you. It says, As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honour your father and your mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. So this is a guy who's, who's coming to Jesus and saying, all these rhythms that you're talking about, these things that it means to be a good disciple, to be a follower of you, I'm doing these things. Look, here you go, I've, I'm doing them. And I'll tell you what, I'm inclined to believe him. I'm inclined to believe him for two reasons. The first one is this, is that he's a first century uh, disciple. And a first century disciple, the Jewish uh, tradition was that young boys were raised in the faith. They knew all about the, the law, the Torah. They knew all about the prophets. They knew all about what the commandments were, what the law of Moses was. And mostly, not everybody, were really good at keeping that law. Because it was rules, it was regulations, and they knew they had to do that to be holy in God's sight. But the second reason I think that this guy's telling the truth, and he actually was doing those things, is you'll see in a second, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, no, I don't think you are doing those things. Because Jesus was, was okay doing that, having those hard conversations. But for this guy, Jesus sees it, and he doesn't correct him. So... You know the commandments? Yeah, he did. He knew the commandments, he was keeping the law, and he held it up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So even though, this is a really interesting point, even though he was keeping the commandments, even though he knew what they were, something still was missing. And he knew it. Because if he didn't know it, he wouldn't have come to Jesus with that question. Jesus responds, Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad for he had many possessions. I used to think that he walked away sad because he didn't agree. I used to think that he walked away in a bit of a huff because he's like, this is ridiculous, I'm not selling all my stuff. But that's not what we see here. You see, Jesus looked at him with genuine love. 
And even though he was being looked at by God himself with genuine love and a way that he can actually uh, experience what God wants him to experience, and he still walks away sad, not angry, not upset, not furious, sad, after Jesus looks at him with love and says, here's what you've got to do. Why would he walk away sad? You see, this guy's whole world has just been turned upside down. Upside down. Because he's like, you know what, I've obeyed the commandments. This is what I've been told to do since I was young. Since I was a little boy, I've been told to be holy in God's sight. I've got to obey the commandments. I've got to keep the law because then God's going to look at me kindly. That's what I've got to do. And he holds it to Jesus and says, look. But also he looks at Jesus and says, but I'm a rich guy. I've got it figured out. I'm good, right? And Jesus says, no. It means nothing. And the things that he's holding to Jesus, the things that he's holding up going, this is what's going to make me right, crumbles in his hands. As Jesus flips it all upside down and says, you're getting it wrong. It's not about your ability to follow the commandments. And it's not about how much money you have. It's not about how much wealth you've stored up. It's not about how people see you. It's not about your position in society. That is all moot. It's not about that. It's about something else entirely. Note, he still didn't do what Jesus asked. There's no record of the man going away and selling all his possessions and giving it to the poor and following Jesus. Even though he hears the words... Jesus looks at him with love and says, here's what you've got to do. He still walks away sad and doesn't do it. He's chosen his own way over God's way. Then we see something interesting happening with the disciples. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, who, by the way, at this point are like, wow, this is a pretty big moment. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. We'll come back to that. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. You know, I've heard so many sermons about the eye of the needle and whether it's an actual, like an eye of a needle and a camel going through an actual needle, whether it's in a gate in Jerusalem and it's a camel's trying to get through that gate, which was a very narrow gate. But I think there's actually a very different reason why the disciples were amazed. You see, they were amazed before Jesus said the camel thing, (laughs) right? Then who in the world can be saved? You see, Jewish tradition said... That prosperity equaled holiness. Prosperity equaled holiness. Got this quote by Joseph Lesheets. He says, Jewish tradition insists that a man can and should have a powerful impact on the material world. Material wealth is highly valued in the Tanakh. You see, this guy in front of the disciples, this guy that came running up to Jesus in the eyes of the disciples and in the eyes of those around him, had it figured out. He was the guy to be like. When it came to holiness, when it came to being right with God, this is the perfect image of who we should be like. He knows the commandments. 
He keeps the commandments. He follows the law. But also, he is rich. And because he's rich, it shows that God has uh, blessed him. Because his relationship with God is so good, so healthy, so wonderful, God is giving him stuff and money and possessions and wealth. And God is giving it to him because he's holy. So they go around in a circle. This, these disciples are looking at this guy going, man, if he can't make it, then who can be saved? This guy, if he can't do it, who can? There is no hope. This guy in front of him was the image of made it, of success. In two clean swipes, Jesus eliminates works and wealth as a way of attaining eternal life. Excuse me. I reckon the, the mood with Jesus and his disciples is pretty tense. He's just re- turned their whole understanding of the kingdom upside down. And then Jesus looks at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. And then Peter began to speak up. And I love it how at camp, I think it was uh, Paul said, Thing about Peter, he opens his mouth to change feet. I love that, right? Um, Peter's biggest flaw was that he often chimed in too early and spoke up. Peter's one of the most amazing traits is that he chimes in early and he speaks up. Because I wonder what kind of feeling Peter then poses this thought. I don't think it was one of confidence. I think that after seeing that well, who can be saved? It's not everything that we've already known and what we've known for our whole lives. You're saying that doesn't mean anything and that crumbles and fades away. And then Peter just poses this thought, well, we've given up everything to follow you. And I wonder if it's in more of a, is, is that enough? <laughs> kind of tone. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property, along with persecution. Nice caveat there. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the last, least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So he affirms Peter and he says, yeah, those who receive eternal life, those who receive blessing, those who receive favour will be those who, f- who give up everything to follow me. Everything. You know, this story is not actually about money. (laughs) It is for that guy, for the guy, the rich man. It is for him, but it's actually not about money. And if you're sitting here and going, whew, I'm so glad Ad said this isn't about money, then maybe it is about money. (laughs) 
Because this is kind of like a fill in the blank. What is it for you? What is that thing that you think that if I bring that to Jesus, he'll be pleased with me? Because the core of this whole story is not money. It's this question. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I feel like that scene in the notebook of that guy. What do you want? What do you want? But that's the question. What do you want? What do I want? Our ambitions are back to life. Our dreams, our future, our plans, everything that we can see in front of us. We are really good as a society of going, you know what, God, you can take every part of my life, but you know what, these certain parts, I kind of need the reins on that. I need to be in control of what's going to happen tomorrow. I need to be in control of my finances. I need to be in control of my work and my holidays and my weekends. I need to be in control of my kids. Man, I need to make sure that they're going to go okay. You know what? They've got to get a good ATAR. They've got to get really good at basketball or hockey or footy or tennis or whatever other sport it is. What's my five-year plan? I've got to figure it out. What's my 10-year plan? Maybe you're really organised. You've got a 20-year plan. Let me ask this question. Does Jesus get a look in? Does Jesus get a say in any of those things? You know, I don't want to get to this point where we, as a society, as a church, we're holding up our own desires to Jesus. We're holding up our own ambitions. We're holding up our plans that we've figured out without him and go, Jesus, look what I have. Look how organized I am. Look at all the beautiful things that are going to happen because, look, I've planned it out. My family's going to be financially secure. We're going to have two houses. We're going to, we're going to um, have hockey players that are like the best hockey players in the world. Our basketball players are going to go play in the NBA. Five-year plan, 10-year plan, 20-year plan. My ambitions, my futures, like God, look at this. How awesome is it? Only to watch it crumble between our fingers. Why are our ambitions brought back to life? When Jesus died on that cross, the veil in the temple, which symbolized the separation of God and man, was torn from top to bottom. God did it. We have a relationship with God now. We are free to come into a, a relationship with a God in heaven who loves us and wants the very best for us. And now every decision that we make, every thought that we have, every action with our hands, every place we go with our feet, every thought in our mind should go through the lens of what does the God that saved me want me to do? Because what I want is what he wants. What I want is Jesus. Something I've learnt, and you might be sitting here going, whoa, this is pretty full on, because if I, if I, if I follow that advice, what if God tells me to just give away all my finances? 
I'm not saying that he'll do that. But he might. What about my home? Like, is God going to make me sell my home and give money to someone else? I'm not saying he will. But he might. <laughs> what if God's plans for my kids is not to be an amazing sports player or not to have a 99 ATAR score? Is God going to stop me from chasing that? I'm not saying that he will. But he might. <laughs> And anything that God gives you, anything that God says, you know what, you hold on to that. Hold it with an open hand because it's not yours to grasp onto. But when you hold those things with an open hand, the things that God has entrusted into your care, whether it be finances, whether it be possessions, whether it be a plan for the future, all those things that God has allowed you to keep in your hand will look different. Why? Because we want him more. We want him first. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you, what? The desires of your heart. Sometimes we see that verse and we we interpret it to be like God's this vending machine in the sky. If I delight myself in the Lord, then yeah, he'll, he'll bless my finances. He'll bless my possessions. He'll make sure my kids are really good at sport. He'll make sure that my five-year plan works out, my 10-year plan works out, and the future is all fine and dandy because I've delighted myself in the Lord. The Bible says it. But if we delight ourselves in the Lord, what's the desire of our heart? Jesus. He's the desire of our heart. So when we desire the Lord, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us more of himself. More of himself. So the things, if you truly give up everything for Jesus and you want him above all else, anything that God entrusts to you, you'll naturally, through the lens of wanting Jesus, want what he wants for that thing. It's no longer a selfish desire. It's no longer my plan. It's no longer my ambitions. It's no longer my future. But it's his. I know it's easy to look at this and go, man, I'm going to lose a lot. No, you're going to gain a lot. (laughs) You're going to gain a lot. Because let me tell you, unless Jesus is first in your heart in your life, in your mind, you'll never be truly satisfied, truly happy, or truly fulfilled. I speak from experience. Unless Jesus is first in your life, you'll never be truly happy, truly satisfied, or truly fulfilled. My prayer is that as we hear this, because it can be challenging, we don't walk away sad, We don't walk away with our tail between our legs going, wow, Jesus didn't affirm my plan. My prayer is that we would cry Peter's words, I have given up everything to follow you. And I want you, Jesus. I want you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that it shows us your truth your heart for us, your hearts for our future, your heart for our family, your heart for our finances and our possessions. And Lord, I just ask right now that that you would send your spirit to, to highlight those things in our lives that we've gone ahead and decided on our own.
those things for our future, our plans, our ambitions that are selfish, that are our own desires, and they would be bound in your precious name, Jesus. Lord, let us be a people that cry out every day, I've given up everything to follow you. And I just want you, Jesus. I just want you. Amen.